Uh, you know, I don't know about you, but there are some people that are just difficult to follow. So, quite honestly, some people are just difficult to hear. Have you ever had a friend who's a low talker? Have you? Have you? I know some of you are wondering, am I going to play a clip from Seinfeld here? I'm not, because I didn't have time to get it for you. But you know, you guys, some of you know what I'm talking about. You know what these? Lo- I I had this friend. Uh, she and, and you know what? She was she was she was a a very a well traveled woman, a woman with great experience, a wealth of knowledge, great wisdom. But she was a low talker. And so whenever I you know whenever you talk to her, you ask her a question, and she just responds. And you always find yourself leaning in. That's always a little awkward. Uh, Bill and, uh, and, and Jeremy and I, uh, when I first got in town, went to Cracker Barrel, and one of the waiters there is a low talker. Now, I'm telling you, if you're a waiter and you're a low talker, it's not good. Because the waiter walks up and says, hi. So, of course, I looked at the waiter and said, well, sure, but I'm not here. And Bill and Jeremy are giving me looks across the table, and I'm thinking, well, he's a low talker. Maybe I could help him out because he could realize. And but and and Bill like suddenly became like the Holy Spirit voice of conviction. And you know, he him and Jeremy were like, you need to stop doing that. And I'm like, well, what's the big deal? He's a low talker, so I'm low talking back, and maybe this will reveal that he's low talking, and it'll help him. I'm actually this is a gift. I don't know what happened with these guys, but they were, I don't, I don't, maybe it was your friend or something, but I, you were upset with me for blow talking back. So apparently I wasn't spreading seed, so I, um, I stopped blow talking to the guy. And um, needless to say, I don't think he's changed. But he is a nice guy. And if you're ever at Cracker Barrel, I hope you order loudly. Have you ever felt like God is a low talker? Have you ever had these moments where you. you You're straining. Oh, I think God's, is, well, is God speaking to you? I think so. Well, how do you know if it's God talking? I don't. I'm trying to hear him. Is it the voice of God? I'm not sure. It seems distant. It's too quiet. Have you had those moments? You're like, God, speak up a little bit here. You know, the whole I need to know your will thing for my life. Of course, if you're like me, you're probably like, hey, God, I need your will now. So I've got to make a decision. Now. You know, like I, I'm not really sure what to do, so if you could just tell me now, loudly. And sometimes we find ourselves straining and just hoping that God will speak up. You know, maybe you're wondering about your hearing. Maybe this isn't God, maybe it's me. Maybe there's something stuck between us and... And there's something I got to clean out of my life. So, I, I, which is, by the way, I think a good question sometimes for us to ask: Why can't I hear from God? And then other times, I think we discover God is in fact shouting, and it's blowing right by us. We're missing it. The voices of other things are crowding out His voice. Romans chapter one speaks of how God shouts to us through creation. That what is seen actually speaks of his glory and his majesty. We certainly know that God speaks from his word. God's actually given you some direction from his word. He's actually given you some specific direction for your life. Some of us are wondering, well, what's God's will for my life? For, for instance, I, should I become a part of this church? Should I go to Brazil? Well, how do I know? I don't have this God for me. Well, there are some specific things that God has called you to as a follower of Jesus, period. 
And so sometimes we go, I don't know, you know, I don't know, you know, telling people, I don't know if that's my, that's his will. I, let me help you. It is his will to tell other people about the person of Jesus. Why? Because it's, we're instructed to do so. We're, we're encouraged to do so from the word of God. This is the voice of God speaking. But of course, there are specific things in our lives. I mean, we go, okay, that's fine. But what about, you know, I got to make a decision on buying a house. How do I know if it's God's will? I mean, these are the kinds of things we struggle with, decisions like this all the time. It's the age-old question, discovering God's will for our lives. We've been talking about the fact that there is this epic story written throughout history, written on the face of creation, and this amazing, alluring story of the exploits of the magnificent, the supreme entity of all that is, the purest essence of all existence. We call him God. He has many names. But as we study history and the rise and fall of nations, empires, and dynasties, we discover that all of life continues to point to one solitary figure, one person that God incarnated into humanity. He, of course, bears this name, Jesus. So how do we, his creation, fit into this story. That's what we've been talking about. As a matter of fact, today is our last day talking about the epic story, talking about our motto, to know the story, to live the story, and to tell the story, to know, live, and tell. And we've been talking for the last few weeks about telling the story of Jesus, the love story of Jesus. How do we understand where we fit. I mean, we, we have to ask ourselves the question, why was I born into the culture? Why was I born into the culture of Western New York? Why were you born into the culture of Middle Tennessee? Why were you born into the culture of Denver, Colorado? Why were you born into the culture of Australia or Brazil or California? Is your life just a series of random chapters, scenes, and seasons? Or is there a story that God is writing with you. A few years ago, quite a few years ago, actually, I went to, um, I was on a mission trip with some teenagers, and I had left Miami, Florida. I'd served there for about three years with a pastor. His name was Bill Billingsley. And I had just left about maybe six months earlier and had gone to St. Louis to start a youth ministry position. We took our kids on a mission trip somewhere within the in, in somewhere within that year, and um, what had happened since I had left, the pastor uh, had cancer, and the cancer had come back. And while I was with him, he was healthy. But after I left, he he became very ill, very sick, to the point of death, actually. And uh, and so we were on a mission trip, and while the while the students were out doing some 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 serving and cleaning at a children's home, I left them and went to the hospital to see. Pastor Bill Billingsley. What I didn't know was that this was two weeks before he was going to die. He died two weeks later. This was my last opportunity to speak to him. So I went in and I saw him. And I served with this man for, like I said, three, three and a half years. And, and uh, he was kind of the old school Southern Baptist guy. And uh, boy, you know, he loved Southern Baptist life. I came from a non-denominational church in New York. I remember one time... I was doing some things, and he looked at me and said, Young man, I've led this church for 30 years in this denomination. You, sir, are not going to change that. Yes, sir. I'll drive the van. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I remember that conversation clearly. You know, he he had some he had these things that he held on onto that were very very dear to him, and it was, some of it was denominational and theological and some other things. But we had this great relationship, kind of a father son relationship, which was a challenge because I was also on his staff, and so that kind of made it difficult at times. But I loved him dearly. While we disagreed with different issues of leadership and so forth, I, I, I loved him dearly. And I went to see him at the hospital, and one of the things he said to me all the time was he talked to me about being a pastor. Well, I didn't want to be a pastor. I hated adults. I didn't like adults. I, adults were too stiff for me. I wanted to be with teenagers. As a matter of fact, I wanted to spend the rest of my life with teenagers until I was 80 years old. And when I was 80, I wanted my teenagers. I figured I'd probably go insane sometime between 60 and 80. So at that point, they put me in an institution, and I, would, I actually used to tell my teenagers this. Would you come, get me out of the institution on weekends, take me to the youth group, and like do party games with me and stuff? So I'm at least, you know, I'm still creating some form of entertainment, and then, you know, take me back. Because I'm sure I'll lose my mind at some point, and it could be fun still for you guys. And I won't be offended. So um, I, I just, I wanted to do youth ministry forever. But he, Bill Billingsley, he used to say, Jamie... I, someday you need to be a pastor. I think God wants you to be a pastor. I'd say, I don't want to be a pastor. Well, I think you need to be a pastor. I don't want to be a pastor. And we'd go back and forth on this thing. Well, I came to see him that day. And I walked into the hospital bed, and he had the oxygen mask on his face. And I walked in, he looked up, and he smiled. And I smiled, and I said, well, you're not going to believe this, but um, you know, I've been praying and stuff. And we, he raised his eyebrows like, well, that's nice to hear. And I said, uh, you know, I told God, this is like a decade ago, by the way. I told God, if you want me to be a pastor, I'll be a pastor. And he smiled, motioned me to come close, and he said, you know, all I ever wanted you to do was be willing to be a pastor. I said, yes, sir, I get that. I also had this type A personality at uh, 22, let's see, I was 24 when I served, 24, 25, 26 when I served with him. And I had this hard time, this type A driving personality, the hard, this hard time delegating. Anybody relate to that? I had this, it's funny, the people who served with me in my later years are, are like, that was hard for you? It was then. It was actually really hard for me um, because I wanted to do everything myself. I wanted it to be right, you know, and I used to say, you know, I grew up in the home where, you know, what, is your leg broken? Huh? Do you do it yourself? You know, if, if your legs aren't broke, do it, you know? And so I, I, I just thought I'm supposed to do everything, and I had a hard time giving things away. I thought, well, why, how, why should I ask somebody else to do it? And he used to tell me all the time that I needed to learn to delegate and empower. So, uh, so after we had our talk about being a pastor, I walked up, and, and uh, by this time it was up near his head, and I, I looked at him, and I said, well, there's something else, too. I said, I, um, I've started delegating now, and I've been gone for, you know, six months a year. I started delegating, and he looked at me, and he goes, I didn't think you knew the meaning of that word. And I said, well, I, I guess I've discovered it. And um, we just had a few more words. We, we laughed a little bit, and um, I put my head uh, next to his on the pillow, and I prayed in his ear that he would sense God in these closing moments, and I kissed him on the forehead, and that was the last time I ever talked to Bill Billingsley. My closing moments with a man who meant a great deal to me. But God used that man to whisper something into my life, was this thought of being a pastor. And for the next 10 years, 
God's spoken whispers to me about pastoring a church. But you see, God only spoke in whispers. I was never really sure. And there was a reason for it. Because I wasn't ready. God wanted, he wanted to teach me some things. There were, there were some things for me to learn. So he al- allowed me to co-write the story with him. See, it's that, again, strange paradox in God's sovereignty of him shifting and orchestrating things in the universe. He at the same time gives me free will and allowed me to go to this place called St. Louis. And I spent more than eight years in a church that was in discovery. There was an ever-present turmoil of a religious and geographical culture trying to find its way through the barriers of institution and tradition. And I had the privilege of serving with a pastor who was not obsessed with his own ego. Wow, that's nice. But he was one who desired mission. And he allowed me to share his struggles of shaping and redefining an existing ethos, like that inner fabric of a pre-existing Christian community. And the setting of that chapter was preparing me for this one. This was part of my story. For Jamie George, this was part of, of, of his story. This was me. Two years ago, I stood and I joined others in a time of musical worship And the whispers that God had placed in my life had grown stronger. And the voice was getting louder. And while singing a song of worship, I sang this line two years ago. Come and let us sing a song, a song declaring that we belong to Jesus. He is all we need. That was it. That simple line God used to speak with complete and total clarity into my life. There were no fireworks. There were no lyrics about leaving St. Louis or becoming a pastor. It was a simple reminder of this one thing. Jamie, you belong to Jesus first. I was bought with a bloody price. And I had freely given my life to him. He was, in fact, all I needed. And that was it. And at that moment, I said, God, I get it. I will go. I don't know what it looks like, but I will pastor. That was two years ago. So I went to my church in St. Louis and said, I'm leaving. I'm going to pastor a church. They said, well, what does that mean? I said, I don't know. I think I'm supposed to plant a church. Well, when are you leaving? I don't know. Where are you going? I don't know. But the voice had found clarity. The voice of whispers for 10 years had found clarity. And let me ask you this question. Sometimes when it feels like God is a low talker, sometimes when it feels like God is so far away and so distant, and you're frustrated going, God, where is the direction here? And I need to know this now. And you think that you got this timetable worked out, and we don't understand what God is orchestrating. And there's a reason he's whispering. You don't know what he's preparing you for. And in the turmoil and in the difficulty, and I had a great deal of that in my time in the Midwest. I didn't understand that I was, was being shaped. I was being prepared. I had to be willing to give up what was familiar and what was comfortable. I had to be willing to walk, willing to trust. And so, a little over a year ago, I was driving through Nashville, Tennessee, and a friend of mine said, hey, look, there's Nashville. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Uh, yeah, there's Nashville. And, um, boy, something about that statement to me on our way to Atlanta stayed with me the entire trip. It was a weekend trip to a conference. I couldn't get it out of my mind. 
And that weekend, there was a speaker. He looked up at the crowd. It was one of those bony finger moments where the guy's pointing, and he says, there's a city crying out for you. And I wrote down Nashville, Tennessee. And God spoke clearly. It's been a year trying to figure out where we're going to go. Angie and I had flown to different places, driven to different places in the country, wondered where we should go. And God was shaping me. See, early on in my ministry and in my life, when I was in high school, I had this love for Jesus. And you know what I found? I found that I really was frustrated and at the same time compassionate for people who were followers of Jesus but didn't live like it. And at the age of 17 years old, God had already begun to shape in me this passionate desire for people. You know, when I first went to plant a church, you know, I've, I'd read books like Blue Like Jazz and some of the other books probably you're familiar with that talk about really being in a majorly, an environment where people just have no clue about God and real spirituality. And, and so, I, you know, I just got to think, but it'd be really neat to be in a place like that. I'd love to go to Boston or it'd be cool to be in New York City or maybe go to Portland or, you know, one of these places, man, where they just, people don't get it at all. And I mean, this could be really cool. And God sends me to Nashville, Tennessee. I arrived here and went, wow, there's church there and there and there and there and there and there and there. And we haven't turned off the same road yet. And I said, God, did I get this wrong? Was this supposed to be like, you know, Franklin, Wyoming? Franklin, Tennessee. Okay. But what I've realized in my year living in this town and in our few short months of growing a church, is that God shaped me for something since the time I was a child, and it's this. First and foremost, my passion is not that of an evangelist, as the Bible speaks of an evangelist, or those evangelists maybe that you've seen. They get fired about about blowing through town, letting people know about Jesus, and then blowing out of town. And they're gifted that way. It's not the way God's made them. I'm not that person. Relationships are too important to me. And the thing that I've found in my life that fires me up more than anything is helping people who claim to be followers of Jesus live like it. To help people who have settled get re-engaged. And what I've discovered in this town is that there are a great many of people that are on the sideline. And God was shaping me to be a pastor here. This is just the beginning of this part of my story. I don't know what happens next. A little, it's just me testifying of God working in my life. I, I don't, I, a lot of unknowns. And some of you are facing choices in your life that are significant. And you're wondering, God, where is that clear voice? Where is the clarity that I'm looking for? It may be in something as simple as a decision for where to take your family for a weekend. It may be purchasing a home. It may be a job. It may be a career change. It may be a marriage. It may be a relationship. But you're looking for the voice of God. And I want to ask you a question. And here at the, at the journey, you know, I, we, we have our journals. If you got your journal with you today, I know a bunch of you guys have them out and you have them open. I want you to write this question down. And I like the way author Dan Allender forms it, so I'm going to quote him, because he just asked this amazing question. I love it. He says this, which choice allows you to live your life most consistently with how God has been writing your life story? Which choice allows you to live your life most consistently with how God has been writing your life story?
See, a lot of times when we're trying to discover God's will, we ask people what they think, and that's good. We should. We should seek wise counsel. And a lot of times we're evaluating the circumstances that are in front of us. That's important. Circumstances can help show us the way. We should look in Scripture. We should seek the still, small voice of God. These are ways we discover God's will. And they're good ways. They're important ways. But we often miss this. There's a bigger picture. Who are you? Where did you come from? I spent a weekend with, uh, with Bill and Amanda as we got ready for their wedding and uh, got to know a little of Amanda's family. Uh, I spent a little time with Bill and his family, a little bit more time, so I got to know the northern Michigan guys a little bit more. And you know what? I, I, I discovered a lot about their family, about their culture, about personality. I learned a lot about Bill meeting his family. I learned a lot about his story. I learned a lot about Amanda and her story by spending time with the people that she grew up with that helped to shape her life. And I think it's important that you ask yourselves, God, what is it that... Because some of you guys go, you know what? Like this whole thing about following Jesus, I got a crap load of stuff in my life. And I'm not real qualified to be called a Christian. Maybe you're a Jesus follower. Maybe you identified with Jesus. I don't think Jesus really wants me to say I'm identified with him because there's a lot of stuff here. I'm here to tell you that every one of us has got our own dump truck full of stuff. We do because of our frailty and our humanity. But God, in his grace and in his mercy and in his sovereignty, works all things together for good for those who love him and are called and written into his story. He takes the junk and he uses it to be a part of our story, even our mistakes. That's how amazing God is. And so ask yourself the question, what themes, what plot is is God unfolding in my life? And how about the lives of your children? Say, I don't have any major decisions right now I'm facing, so it's not really that big a deal. This doesn't apply to me. I was blessed with some time with my family last week. We had a fun time in Florida, and and, um, the grandparents gave us some money to go snorkeling. So we we went snorkeling, and, uh, you know, I'd gone snorkeling in the Keys, and it was kind of a neat experience. Snorkeling in, uh, in, in Destin is not exactly snorkeling in Key Largo, Florida. So we went snorkeling in two feet of water, and it was pretty much cloudy, and there were like these seaweed things that were like everywhere, and needless to say, my expectations were not exactly met in the snorkeling experience. However, my children never been snorkeling, and so here's my daughter, seven years, they don't know. So we get out in the water, and once we get, you you know, oh, you're not supposed to take that thing and stick it under the water. So after I drowned all three of my kids a little bit, um, they figured that thing out. We went snorkeling. And so we're, we're in our two feet of water. And, and, and so the, the big excitement in, 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 in our two feet of water was, was finding hermit crabs. They were everywhere. And uh, it was, so we're finding little hermit crabs. And, and Ashton, my seven-year-old, takes her arm and wraps it around mine and says, Daddy, I want to be with you the whole time. You don't leave me. Okay, you're with me. And so, you know, in the beginning, I'm trying to, you know, figure the whole thing out and dealing with my expectations. When it finally occurs to me, like an idiot, my daughter has her arm wrapped around my arm. And the two of us are in two feet of water in Florida, snorkeling around, pointing at hermit crabs. 
and I looked over at her with her goggles underwater, and I stuck my finger and tapped her lens, and she looked over at me, and I went, I love you. And she goes, and I thought, you know what? It's part of my daughter's story. My daughter and her dad were snorkeling and Destin looking at hermit crabs while she was seven. In Nashville, I don't see a whole lot of snorkeling experiences coming quickly. And you know, when you think back in your life, it's the unusual, it's the extraordinary, it's those special events, often the spontaneous things that we remember, isn't it? So someday, my daughter will be a teenager or 20 or 30 or 60, and she's going to tell somebody, when I was seven, I put my arm in my dad's arm, and we went snorkeling together as part of her story. And sometimes we miss those moments. We miss the memories. And we don't realize that these are the very things that are shaping the lives of our children. That when you bring your children to the Journey Church and you place them under the pastoral care of Dan Trippy, and for those of you who don't have children or not yet experienced our children's ministry, you haven't realized how blessed we are. God has sent us one of the finest children's pastors in all of America, I'm convinced. And I'm watching my children being shaped by their pastor. This is part of their story. Go back to your flannel graph days. You got stories of those Sunday school teachers, some of them with hair under their armpits, some of them with bare bad breath. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, I've had those. Your vacation Bible school things, but it was part it's part of your story, it's part of what happened in your life. This is we I, we miss this stuff. And sometimes life goes by so fast that we miss it. Authors, hear me this morning. Would you be intentional with your pens? And for those of you authors who tend to write in straight lines and have difficulty drawing outside the lines, would you put your pens down and pick up a crayon once in a while? Pick up a paintbrush and paint and draw. But be intentional. Don't let life ebb and flow over you. And so it brings us to the heart of the scripture, Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 4. It's a story. Jesus said to his disciples that he was going to speak in stories often, called them parables. And this is kind of the foundational story of all stories. This is the parable of all parables. As a matter of fact, you'll find it in three of the four Gospels. The first four books in the New Testament. Mark chapter 4, Jesus is teaching. Verse 2. He taught them many things by parables, by stories. And in his teaching, he said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and some birds came and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was, was shallow. 
But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so, they did n- so that they did not bear grain. And still other seed fell in good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. And Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is teaching throughout his ministry on earth. It's essentially summarized in this story. He calls us to be a life giver. He calls us to be a sower. We've talked a lot about the, at the journey about, about adding value to people's lives. I mean, what is it like to add value to somebody's life? This weekend, we have three different families moving this weekend in our church, and I love this. I'm calling up people in the church, and this person's out with that family, and they're out with that family, and they're out with that family. What do you guys know? Oh, they're moving. You're moving too? Yeah, they're moving. They're moving too? Yeah, we're moving. Everybody's moving. And you know what? And people are out helping people. That's what it's, you're adding value. You're saying, hey, I value you have a need. How can I help? Let me give of myself. What's this concept of adding value, of giving our lives away? This is the same concept. I'm going and I'm scattering seed. Everywhere we, sh- everywhere we go, we should be scattering seed. The seed of truth. And we do this with our words. We do this with our tone. We do this with our attitude. We do this with our behavior. I think some of us sometimes just think in terms of words. UCLA study said this. 93% of our communication is nonverbal. 93% of our communication is nonverbal. Your posture communicates something. Your facial expression communicates something. When we're supposed to go and be scatters of seeds, it's not just, oh, did I, did I tell someone the four spiritual laws? Did I stop and say Jesus loves you? Did I slap a bumper sticker on my car so that I'm saying something while I'm driving? It's so much more than words. It is your attitude. It is your tone. It is your look. Have you gotten that line? Get that look off your face. Have you heard that deal before? What's that look on your face? I don't like your tone. Have you said that to your kids? I don't like your tone. I don't like that tone. Mom, hey mom, can I have a piece of candy? Mom, I want a piece of candy. I just said use the same words. But the second one, I wanted to smack the punk. I used to tell my kids, here's the deal. If you want to talk, talk with a smile. You can't talk without a smile. By the way, try that. Try and whine and smile. It doesn't work. That's free, by the way. A little free parenting deal. If your kids, I'm telling you, it works. You guys, try it. Your kids whine, just go, oh, hey, say that again with a smile. They go, can I? You can't whine. It's next to impossible. It's free. We're supposed to be scatterers of seeds, sowers of seeds. You remember the message when we first talked about this? We talked about a passage from Matthew chapter 5. You remember that? And Matthew chapter 5 talked about us being, being what? Everybody remember? Salt and light, right? Matthew chapter 5 gave us this first picture of adding value to people's lives, of giving ourselves away with, with, with salt and light. 
And so the, 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 the metaphor that Jesus is giving us is saying, hey, I want you to be light in a dark world. So Janine, take that candle. I want you to hold this. He's asking us to be light. He's also asking us to be salt. And he's asking us to be salt. He's saying, I want you to be the salt of the world. So, Jake, I'm going to pour a little salt in your hand, all right? I want you to be salt, all right? Mark, I'll give you a little salt, all right? There you go. All right. Cherie, we're going to give you a little salt. Blaine, a little salt. Oh, there you go. Sorry. Some for your lap. Uh, uh, good. You can use that for dinner later, all right? And, and then we're also supposed to be seeds. We're supposed to be, we're supposed to, and don't eat those sunflower seeds because I know they're really good. Um, we're, we're supposed to be seeds. We're supposed to, supposed to, supposed to, this is, I mean, this is what we're supposed to be. This is what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5 and Mark chapter 4. Th- these are the illustrations that he's giving us. We're, we're supposed to be scattering seed, salt, and light. And I want you to get this picture. This is everywhere you go, you're a seed scatterer. Everywhere you go, you are flavoring people's lives with salt, or you are, in fact, preventing decay. Janine, this is your light. Let me see your light for a second. This is Janine's light. This is the Spirit of God working in Janine's life. I want to tell you what Janine has done. She's held this light for a friend, a friend she's known since high school named Tracy. And she said, Tracy, I love you, and God has so much more for your life than what you're living in Washington, D.C. Hey, you and Matt, what about Nashville? Matt and Tracy are in the back taking care of our PowerPoint for us. Jake, you've got some salt. Would you put some in my hand? Thank you. Jake is helping my family and helping our church with child care by helping me finish my basement. He's flavored my life. He's flavored my life. My life is better because I know Jake. This is what, he, this is what he's done for me. He's put, this, he's put this in my hand. Mark, do you have salt in your hand? Mark is taking his salt in a few weeks to East Nashville. He's going to flavor the lives of some children and teach them how to play basketball. Why? It's something God's put in his heart and in his mind. Something he wants to do. Beth and Blaine, you have some salt. Your sister's here. She's hanging out with us. She heard about us from her sister and from her brother-in-law. You flavored your sister's life. Some of you guys have some seed. You're going to walk out today, and you're going to go to a restaurant, and depending on how you tip the waiter, you know there are restaurants, I've talked to people, that they hate Sundays because church people are cheap. Hey, what does that say about our seed scattering, our salt and light? Do you get this concept Everywhere you go, in, your, in the highways and byways, in your coming and going, you are scattering seed. You're depositing salt. You are giving forth light. This is it, folks. This is the journey. This is who we are. A lot of times we get hung up on growth. We spend a lot of time, well, we've got to get discipleship classes 
We're going to have like four different programs. The men's ministry is going to meet for an accountability group on Tuesday night. We're going to have a discipleship group on Wednesday night. The women's going to have a prayer meeting on Thursday morning. Then we're going to meet on Friday to talk about how we can best do evangelism. Then Thursday morning, we're going to take crispy, or Saturday morning, we'll take Krispy Kreme donuts to people's houses and knock on their door and tell them they need Jesus. Then on Sunday, we're going to show up for church. And we got all this planning and strategizing on how we're going to grow, and we don't do it. And when we do do it, we're not effective. Because it feels forced and fake. I'm telling you, just go live life. But live it intentionally. Live it the way the author of your story wants you to live it. With your tone and your gestures and your voice and your face and your words and your life. That Jesus is a God of love. You know, Matthew, or I'm sorry, and John. Chapter 3, Jesus says, I, I didn't come to the world to condemn the world. I came to the world to call sinners to repentance. I'm not the, world, the person doing the condemning. As a matter of fact, the conviction that people feel comes from the Spirit. That's His job. I'm calling and I am loving people. When Jesus was harsh, it was with the fake religious people. The people who were destitute received His compassion and His love. And we walk around those people every day. I think sometimes we have the wrong impression of what a church should be. We think the church is about sticking bodies in a room on a Sunday. And it's not. And we will never be that. One of the things I hear people ch- quote all the time in the church is, you know, we got 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. Anybody ever heard that, by the way? 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. That, that will never be quoted here. Wonder why? Because the church won't exist if it is. We're not going to have a 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. We're going to have 100% of the people doing 100% of the work. Because at the journey, we have partnership. We don't have membership. You don't pay dues and sit back and come to be fed five times a week and become spiritually obese because you never exercise. That's not us. It's not who we are. We're going to live the story that God has created, and we're going to serve alongside each other. We're going to serve the community and love each other. And you know what? The truth is, when that happens, that's when you see a difference. That's when culture begins to change. But if you want to come to a Sunday morning and you expect a Reader's Digest story and you want to come for your moment of inspiration, you're in the wrong place. Go home and watch a rerun of Little House on the Prairie. This is not just about an hour of inspiration. It's not just about giving some Dr. Phil common sense advice. While I appreciate some of those things, that's not what this is about. It is about coming and experiencing God and being equipped and empowered to go back into your everyday life to live Jesus to the world. Have you ever noticed that different lights have different purposes? I think with varying people and varying cultures, our light is dispensed differently. Sometimes we're a soft candle that subtly shines the light of truth. Sometimes we're a bonfire of love that people can come close and find warmth. Sometimes you're the annoying middle school student at camp with the million lumen spotlight flashing it on people when they're trying to sleep and asking annoying questions. For some reason, I feel like that's my calling in life. At least for this season, I'm the annoying middle school kid with the flashlight, and I'm going to keep flashing it and asking you annoying questions. Turn the light off. But see, you know what? Most of the church in America is in a slumber. And somebody's got to wake them up. 
Unfortunately, much of the church has contributed to the sleepiness. We've set up people to be consumers. Hey, I'm going to give you this amazing display on Sunday and come see it. And woo, you'll be fed. Then do nothing with it. You know what, people? I got to tell you, whatever you whatever you use to get people is what you'll have to have to keep people. And so we're not about a show. We're about loving and experiencing God to find Jesus here at the journey. You remember the four kinds of soil. You remember. Four different kinds. By the way, is it interesting? The sower doesn't go, I'm going to put a little seed right there. No, he didn't get any seed. Some seed right here. She's a jerk. Some seed right there. Yeah, the sower doesn't sow that way. The farmer's not out there sowing like that. The farmer's out like just, whoa, just whipping, you know, just chucking seed everywhere. That's the picture of the scripture right here. And he says, look, here it is. Some of the seed fell on the road. Path, birds ate it. It's gone. Nothing worthless. Okay. I just tossed it there. Nothing came of it. Okay. Then the second, second seed fell in gravel. It popped up quickly. Whoa, yeah. Somebody's responding. Somebody's going to find Jesus. The next thing you know, there's no root. Dead. You ever been to a camp deal? Friday night, you know, like the whole camp, standing at the altar, people are crying on top of each other. There's been worldwide revival, and the next week, people are out there having sex and getting hammered. You're like, oh, that worked out great. It's gravel. It's just gravel. Just call it what it was. A seed fell in the gravel. Spring up quickly. And then you get some that's tossed into the thorns. It actually grows a little bit, but man, the cares of the world choke it out. But then there's that good soil. There's that, there's that fourth kind of soil. There's this, there's this good soil. And, and this is amazing. This is the part I think we miss about this thing. See, I think in a church sometimes we're hung up on like the first three. Like we're hacked like, oh man, I'm so upset that guy. He didn't make it. And, and that person and, and this person. And I've been trying to. And, and they didn't. And I wish I could. And, and all this stuff about the first three kinds of soil. And we miss the fourth kind of soil. The fourth kind of soil is this is good soil. Man, you spend a little time here and you've got a forest. You spend a little time here, and there's passion, and there's excitement. Brian and Heather, you guys remind me of good soil. I watch people deposit a little bit of love into you guys, and love is flying everywhere to everybody. That's good soil. And you know what this says? Jesus, speaking, telling the story, says, it produced a crop multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. I don't claim to be real good in math, but I'm thinking that's a pretty good return on your investment. I'm thinking our good friend Dave Ramsey would be happy about a 100% return. 30, 60, or even 100 times. So, folks, we've got to be a church full of good soil. And if we are, and I believe we are, by the way, guess what that means about you? 30, 60, 100 times. That when this season of your life is over and you're laid in a wooden box or you're up to be with Jesus, whatever happens first, you're going to look back and go, wow, 30, 60, even 100 families were touched by my light, 
my salt, my seeds. They had some good soil along the way. And I was good soil. After all, God's written me into a story.